Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, March 4th. We begin with a look at this week's announcement of the extension of some of the government support programs in response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We speak with Jack Mintz from the U of C's School of Public Policy on how long these programs should be kept in place and eventually how they should be phased out. Next, we examine the state of Canada's employment insurance program. We catch up with Jake Fuss of the Fraser Institute, who says the current version of EI is outdated and needs to be overhauled. It's a day most Alberta campers have had circled on the calendar for quite some time. We speak with an Alberta Parks ambassador about the kickoff of online campsite booking at provincial sites and how this year campers can expect some changes. And finally, we hear the incredible story of an Edmonton man's journey from suffering a heart attack to planning a trip to climb Mount Everest. We meet Leo Naiman and hear the reason behind his ambitious plan. 709 on the morning news. The Trudeau government announced yesterday it will be extending emergency wage and rent subsidies. But how and when will Canadians find a way to wean off the COVID supports? Jack Mintz is an economist and public policy analyst at the University of Calgary. And he joins us now with his take on the subject. Good morning to you, Jack. Uh, good morning. I think we can all, uh, you know, get on the same page and agree that those people who need help, we, uh, you know, have to be sure that we can do all we can as a nation. And uh, we got to applaud any government's, you know, movements to do just that. But how important is it for us to look at the end game when it comes to winding down these programs? Is that something that we should, you know, be cognizant of and, and kind of look to the future and, and have some sort of a date or timeline? Well, actually, there's uh, kind of two parts to, to that question. Um, when mentioning the end game, I think part of the problem is that we don't know when the end mm-hmm. game is uh, going to end. Uh, we still have health restrictions going on. Uh, our vaccine uh, program has been finally rolling out, but it's you know it's been slow, or slower than many other countries actually, uh, and so it's going to take time before we get uh, a significant part of the population vaccinated. Uh, that's going to allow for more opening up. Uh, for, exa- for example, I just read. Uh, something this morning that Israel, which is, of course, the most advanced in vaccination programs in the world, has um, really been opening up a lot. So and that's because of the decline in, in hospitalizations and, and deaths. Uh, it's been really quite dramatic with the vaccinations. So, you know, we do need to get to that point. And um, so that's one, one, one part of it. Uh, we still are in that situation. So I think the extension is uh, appropriate for that reason. Uh, but I think the bigger question is, uh, have we done too much as opposed mm. to uh, not doing, um, uh, you know, just the right thing? And, uh, you know, we're very unusual as a country. Uh, we had a huge increase in household incomes during the pandemic. Uh, on average, it went up, uh, uh, last numbers I saw, around uh, 11 12% uh, during a recession. Uh, and that's because government transfers were so much more than the actual employment losses. Uh, and as a result, people actually, uh, at least on average, got more money, not less. And and uh, and this is unusual because most OECD countries, it was kind of flatlined, but Canada and the United States actually have um, gone much further in terms of actually throwing, throwing more money at, mm-hmm. at the household sector. And so... Uh, as a result, I think, uh, you know, we have taken on much more public debt uh, than I think has been appropriate. So, you know, obviously in this case, are you saying that less is is more or just we should have been more effective and strategic? And, and if so, in what way could we have done it more effectively? Uh, well, I think we could have been more more strategic and, and targeted in our approach. 
Uh, there was a lot of decisions that were made. You know, part of it was in a rush at the beginning, which is understandable. Uh, although there were some things done that I think were uh, not necessary at that time, such as the old age security um, payment, which went to a lot of higher income households, and that was totally unnecessary. Um, and uh, and so I think you know we do have uh, some issues. I think in terms of what we did, and of course we know the We Charity scandal that was another billion dollars, but it also was another uh, support to students that were already getting uh, uh, $8 billion of other support and uh, didn't really need another billion. So it, it's those kinds of decisions. And then, of course, there's been criticisms of the um, of the initial uh, uh, Canada Emergency Recovery Benefit and, uh, and the uh, wage subsidy uh, and rental subsidy. Uh, the rental subsidy was actually too tight. It wasn't very helpful to a lot of businesses. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a disaster, actually, at the beginning. Uh, they imp- you know, there's been improvements to that. Um, the wage subsidy, people criticized it. We went to a number of firms that really didn't need it. Uh, and although it did, the whole point of it was to keep people attached to their companies. Uh, and then, of course, there was the money that was given to people, um, you know, if they didn't work. And questions, was it too generous? Uh, there has been improvements in that, but again, uh, as studies have shown, there was a lot of money that went to higher income households or people that were all uh, didn't need didn't really need the money. The other argument, I guess, you could play devil's advocate and say, well, you know, this is borrowed money that is you know being doled out to to help those in need. Uh, no question, it's, it's uh, the intentions are in the right place, but it's been borrowed on a low interest rate. We've had historically low interest rates when it comes to borrowing, uh, but those rates uh, will be going up. Uh, that's inevitable, right? Well, I think so. In fact, they've already uh, started rising. The long-term rates are almost at the point uh, uh, since, um, you know, the depth of the, uh, you know, uh, or last spring, uh, which was the depth of the uh, pandemic. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know, this whole argument that interest rates are low and we can therefore take on a lot of public debt, uh, people forget that actually we, we will eventually have higher interest rates, and there may be even a resumption of inflation. I mean, there's debate about that, but uh, if there is inflation, uh, uh, that's only because governments have put poured so much money into the economy that demand may outstrip supply, and that will uh, cause prices to rise. And, and we'll have to see uh, what will happen, uh, especially in the United States and Canada, where we've had these huge packages, including mm-hmm. the American one that is now being. Uh, push through Congress another $1.9 trillion as the economy is already bouncing back quite well. So, you know, there, I think, I think those, uh, things are, are important. And, and we forget that really, you know, all this government subsidies that have been paid now, uh, is going to be, uh, is coming from the future. In mm-hmm. other words, there are voters in the future that didn't get to choose, uh, what we're doing right now. And, and they're going to be bearing that cost. And already Britain has announced, uh, I just saw it this morning, that they are going to be looking to raise tax rates uh, after 2023 mm-hmm. uh, to start paying for the cost of the pandemic. Well, it's interesting, too. You know, you don't want to politicize something like this. And as you mentioned, you know, you uh, referenced the We Charity scandal. It seems like to me, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, giving government a bit of a pass because it is an extraordinary time. But the optics, if you're in the liberal government, you have to look at when you're going to be pulling this back because if it's, it carries on too long, that could uh, not be a good look for the government. So they, I think they have to be quite strategic as well. No, I, well, I think, you know, from the point of view of public policy, they need to be. But unfortunately, the politics is that, if, uh, you know, if these packages are popular, people 
don't see the consequences, uh, you know, in the future. Uh, and they think, you know, this is, and, you know, it has saved the economy. Plus, you know, people were told not to go to work, not, you know, to stay at home. And so in a way, this is kind of compensation for uh, mm. for government orders, which you could argue, you know, is appropriate. But um, but I think that uh, because of the uh, lack of targeting and, and some of the extra costs, in other words, you know, maybe we didn't have to spend, you know, $250 million or whatever the number is. We could have gotten away with 200 uh, in other words. So, you know, $50 billion is a lot of money. Uh, but I think the key is, is that we put ourselves into uh, more risk now in the future. Mm-hmm. And if there's a, another recession down the road or, you know, a currency crisis somewhere in the world um, that could affect us, and, you know, then uh, we don't have the same firing power uh, to deal with those crises as, as we had going into this one and in the previous one and, uh, with the 2008 financial crisis. So, so those those risks are are there, and when they get when bond markets turn against a country, they 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 turn rapidly, and all of a sudden you get uh, much higher interest rates uh, because of credit risks and things like that. And Canada's gross debt now, uh, all government debt is now well over 100 percent of GDP, which is starting to get us back into the period of the 1990s, uh, even though uh, interest rates today are much lower than they were then. Excellent. Well, you had some, some excellent points and a great conversation. Thanks for your time this morning, Jack. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That is Jack Mintz, economist and academic and public policy analyst at U of C School of Public Policy. 8-11 on the morning news. Is Canada's employment insurance program outdated? We're joined now by senior economist with the Fraser Institute, Jake Fuss, for his take on how the pandemic has helped shine a light on the problems with the system and our country's need for an update. Good morning to you, Jake. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for being here. Jake, it, it seems like this is a topic that, that comes up. It's, it's kind of circular in nature. Every few years we talk about employment insurance, what's in place and what can be, you know, fixed up or, or tweaked. Uh, but the pandemic, uh, you know, may have uh, highlighted some different cracks in the system. What do you see the pandemic uh, doing? Yeah, well, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the expectation is that unemployment rates will remain relatively high in Canada for the foreseeable future while we, we deal with the fallout from covid um, and, and the pandemic has exposed many problems in our current employment insurance system. And ultimately, um, you know, we are going to face financial stress in that system for years to come. Uh, so to put it simply, we cannot maintain the status quo. Um, and we ultimately need to redesign our employment insurance system um, for our 21st century system to make it more efficient, equitable and effective. Okay, how do we do that? Do we have some sort of a roadmap? Do we look at other nations in, in, in what they're doing? Yeah, so there's a few p- potential changes that you can make. Um, you know, for instance, you could make tweaks um, where you, the government consider um, making it more of an experience-rated ra- system. What this means is, you know, calibrating the EI premiums that workers and their employers pay uh, to more closely reflect historical claims made for EI benefits. Uh, so that's one smaller change that you could make. Um, but one possible and more substantial reform that you can make um, is to replace our system with something called unemployment insurance savings accounts. Um, so these are basically mandatory personal savings accounts, um, which employers and employees would make payroll tax contributions into them. Um, and then these accounts are the personal property of the worker and the funds deposited in the savings accounts, um, you know, could be invested in a diversified portfolio, somewhat similar to how we do our tax-free savings accounts right now. Um, and then the workers could ultimately withdraw from those, uh, from the funds from their own accounts, um, during spells of unemployment. Or they can even use the remaining money in the account however they see fit when they retire. 
Um, so it's really kind of more of a flexible way um, than our current system. So tied to the individual, the individual switches jobs or careers, it would move with them type of a thing, your suggestion? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it would be a flexible account. So it would be the personal property of, of the uh, worker. So it, it wouldn't matter, um, you know, who their employer is. Um, they would just simply uh, go with the, the employee um, wherever they go. Um, you know, so it would be their own personal property, their own personal savings account, um, you know, similar to uh, a tax-free yeah. savings account, for example. But Jake, devil's advocate here, uh, you know, somebody who'd, you know, been in an industry for 20 years, that account would be, you know, fairly beefy and uh, substantial, a nice, uh, you know, rebound or a safety net. But somebody who'd been in a, in a company or in the workforce for two or three years would maybe be at a disadvantage, wouldn't they? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. You know, certainly, um, you know, the, the advantage of this system, too, is over the, the longer term. Um, so, you know, when we use conservative forecasts of future investment returns, we estimate that the average Canadian worker would accumulate a sufficient balance in their savings account after about five years of employment. Um, so, you know, there's certainly transition issues that we, you would have to work out in order to implement some type of system here. Um, but, you know, we would also, you know, recommend something like a, a parallel account set up by the government um, where um, funded by general tax revenues that could be used to supplement payments from, you know, oh. underfunded accounts, for example. Okay. Um, you know, so that would be one way that you could cover people that maybe haven't been in the workforce for long enough uh, to have a sufficient balance yet. Jake, what about the angle that, you know, now more than ever, EI is, you know, uh, super important. Obviously, this is an unprecedented time. I know that's a cliche, but it literally is an unprecedented time. Um, that we, we shouldn't look at tinkering or making any changes until we're well past the pandemic. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I think um, sooner or later, we are going to have to address the issues um, in Canada's EI system, um, mainly because of the financial stress that it's going to put on. Um, you know, there's another whole level of high-level problems that are existing in our system right now. Um, you know, for example, uh, the system provides unequal benefits to people depending on where the worker lives. Um, you know, we also don't cover the self-employed through the system or those who work in the growing gig economy, per se. Um, and we've also seen that overly generous uh, unemployment insurance benefits can actually incentivize people to stay unemployed for extended periods of time. Um, so, you know, a lot of these different things are, are addressed by um, performing the system uh, and ultimately having it work better for Canadians in the longer term. Um, sooner or later, you are going to have to address those issues at some point. Jake, do you think that, you know, where we're at right now, there could be a certain level or amount of apathy? People saying, oh, we're in this much debt anyway. It, it, it doesn't matter. We're never going to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, there's always potential for apathy, especially, you know, during a pandemic, um, you know, especially for the, the long extended time period that we're seeing, um, you know, right now. Um, but, you know, ultimately, at, at some point, a lot of these, these problems come back. Um, you know, right now, EI premiums are frozen uh, for the next two years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point, they're likely going to start increasing, and then you're going to see that effect on your paycheck, too, you know, whether that's two or three years from now. Um, with them increasing, you know, some of the premiums to help pay back um, a lot of the money that's being spent on employment insurance um, right now. Um, so, you know, ultimately these these problems um, will come back at some point. Mm-hmm. Jake, thanks so much uh, for your thoughts and your time this morning. Thanks very much for having me on. That is Jake Fuss, senior economist with the Fraser Institute. 8.44 on the morning news. Today is the day that Alberta opens its provincial parks for individual camping reservations. But how will the season look amid the pandemic? We're joined now by Karen Ung, an Alberta Parks Ambassador and Play Outside blogger. Good morning to you, Karen. Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time. I understand we're not too far away. The clock is ticking. 
until the uh, site is open. Is that right? That's right. First reservations can be made at 9. Ooh, I think that, you know, we've seen websites and, and heard about websites in the news crashing as of late. So, I don't know, I think last year uh, people had some issues because of the volume, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, everyone was super eager to get out there because, of course, you know, the parks were shut down for a few months. And so I'm super stoked they're open this year, but I do expect everywhere to be very, very busy just like last year. Karen, if you can break down the details for us again, the site opens up at 9. So uh, which parks are they? And, of course, uh, which which campsites? And uh, how far in advance can we be booking? Okay, so today, uh, starting today, you can book 90 days in advance in Alberta parks. And so um, the 9 a.m. bookings are for southern Alberta. At 11 a.m., you can book Kananaskis Country. 1 p.m. is Central Alberta, and 3 p.m. is Northern Alberta. So those are all online. Um, But, yeah, you do want to be familiar with what area your campground is in so you can be online at the correct time or you'll be quite annoyed when you find out your site's your campground's not available. Um, A little bit of different things this year. So, yes, super stoked they're open. Individual campsites are open. Um, comfort camping is open, which is really great because that was not available last year. But a few things, personal items, right, like sheets, you'll have to bring your own sheets. Um, but the mattresses will still be there and, you know, you can still, like, have a fire and stuff. Um, and then their showers are closed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I think... That might almost help the situation, though, because people won't be staying in the campground <laughs> for so long, right? That's a very good point. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to go a week without a shower. Most people. So I'm hoping that you know maybe people will do more short stays. I don't know. Just yeah, I I don't have a trailer, so I don't have a yeah. shower on board. I'm doing like two three night stays myself. Um, yeah, and then. I guess most things are the same as usual. What but about of course, the fees, right? Are the fees going up just a bit? Um, I haven't heard. I believe they're the same as last year. Okay. Yeah, so I haven't heard any notification on fees. Um, and then what else was I going to say there? <laughs> um, but yeah, people are quite concerned about being able to book a uh, site, mm-hmm. but there are 5,000 first-come, first-served sites. So that is a little over a third of the campsites available in Alberta Park. So there are 9,000 reservable, 5,000 first-come, first-served. So if people are, you know flexible, willing to drive a little bit further from the major centers, you know, maybe head out Thursday night. I'm pretty sure everybody can get a site somewhere nice. Yeah, that's a good point because you're not too sure about your holiday plans. It's good to see that they're setting some aside for the rest of us who who don't have it planned and aren't going to be on the website just battling it out this morning at Mm -hmm. 9. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And so... You can book today up until June 4th, okay. and then I had there, I noticed there's some confusion. People saying, well, when is the next booking period? It's a rolling 90 days. Oh, okay. Yeah, so whenever you want. So if you're trying to book Canada Day long weekend, book that three months, exactly 90 days in advance. So right now you can't book for Canada Day, right? Okay. It's still June 4th, but uh, this is the time to secure your May long weekend site. And um, hopefully the site will survive the uh, high number of people getting online. Good to see. And I mean, uh, having said that, you know, I think a lot of people out there, there's so many different details, but camping is just really blown up with popularity, obviously. So thank you so much for your information this morning, Karen. Yep, thanks for having me. You too. That is Karen Ung, Alberta Parks Ambassador and a Play Outside blogger. 909 on the morning news. A heart attack couldn't stop one Albertan from climbing to new heights. Leo Naiman joins us now with more on his journey to recover. And, of course, uh, Mount Everest enters the conversation. Uh, Good morning to you, Leo. 
Hey, good morning, Andrew. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, thank you for uh, joining us and uh, sharing uh, your story with us. Well, let, let's break this down, Leo, and, and talk about, uh, you know, obviously, within the introduction there, uh, having a heart attack. When, when did you have your heart attack and what were the circumstances surrounding it? Uh, I had a heart attack in 2018, uh, coming back from uh, climbing Mount Rizava in Mexico, the third highest point in North America. Was that it was all great. Uh, we helped to orphanages there. Well, that's what we do when we climb the international mountains. And then I came back to Edmonton and I uh, training at the gym. And my son approached me and he said, "You know what? Uh, I think your pelvic something's going on." I started to feel that chest discomfort. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, five minutes later, my son is going to grab my car because I am just sitting across from the gym, uh, having a heart attack. Uh, they took me to the um, to the hospital, the nearest hospital, which is luckily uh, about five blocks away from the gym. And from there, to, they decided to transport me to a different hospital. They couldn't handle that type of uh, heart attack in there, so they took me to a Royal Alec Hospital, uh, where they did a surgical procedure. Brought me back to my uh, previous hospital, and then they told me that I had a, um, a full blockage of the coronary artery uh, for 47 minutes. Uh, 55% of my heart uh, didn't have any blood flow, and that's basically what happened uh, with the heart attack. I'm wondering, at this point, you're 48 years old, in fantastic shape, and here you are having a heart attack. What's going through your mind at that point? Well, it, it is, it is, it is always the what. I knew what, what happened, uh, I, I, the who and all those things that, but it was just the why. Why being a man that doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, uh, I still had a heart attack. Uh, so I, I, I went to, to, to a lot of challenges in my life, uh, after my heart attack. And you think that having the heart attack is just, it's just the, uh, that, that it, and then you're going to get back in that. And now, I, I remember going down the stairs uh, to my basement where I have my, my, my climbing gear. Mm-hmm. And it's when reality hit. Uh, I could not get back uh, a few set of stairs uh, up, up in the kitchen. I had to call my wife and ask her for assistance. Wow. Uh, uh, it's where reality, the depression and that fear uh, is when you realize you lose your identity. when you realize uh, 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 you will not be able to get back to be the same man, the same father, the same son. And, of course, you will not be able to possibly climb again any mountain. You know? Okay, so flash forward is 2021. That was uh, three years ago. Your journey to, to have this super ambitious goal uh, why did you, <laughs> aiming high, you, you can't aim much higher than Mount Everest. How did that goal come to be? Well, we're, we're, uh, this, 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 this whole thing is, it's, is a, uh, the goal, the goal comes to, to, to I come to realize that, uh, uh, I, I, I joined a team uh, of people, so other survivors, and I, and I ended up helping other survivors, uh, with advice and things like that. And then, uh, I realized I could do a little bit more. I I, I saw a case that I thought, you know what, uh, this lady is going through all these struggles. What am I complaining about? It's always it's always that opportunity that you have to see uh, when you have the opportunity to see others others individuals having uh, worse worse situations than you. And and, and then it's uh, you know I've been doing this. I thought I've been doing this all my life. I've been mm-hmm. climbing mountains to help others. Uh, this is a good opportunity for me to do something uh, remarkable for for others, and I said, you know what, uh, let's let's do it. Let's do it for survivors. Uh, during the process, 
uh, I, I obviously thought, you know what, everyone out there is supposed to heart attack. I was supposed to heart attack, even though I thought I wasn't uh, going to ever have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, my third goal came in to say, I, am a, I have a family of six in my home. Uh, four of them are women. And I thought, you know what, uh, women are over dying. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, and it made me sad to think that it's just basically because of, uh, of the lack of uh, research towards women. So I, I thought it was a good opportunity in our partnership with uh, Harness Row Foundation in order to fundraise money for heart disease, uh, especially uh, women's research. Raising funds, doing it for the awareness and doing it to forward the cause, the Heart and Stroke Foundation, as you mentioned. So, so tell me now about your training uh, for Everest and, and how you had to ramp that up after having a heart attack three years ago. Was it baby steps to get to where you are today? Oh, it's been, it's been mental, to be honest. Uh, I've, been, I've been training for the, the past uh you know, two years for from two hours at the beginning until uh, six hours. Uh, right now, for example, I'm in a in a training in a training uh, program that takes me seven hours a day to to complete. Uh, uh, you know, it, it it involves outdoors. It involves uh, many many uh, many sections. It involves uh, breathing control. It involves sleeping habits, it involves a diet, it involves doctors, it involves cardiologists, scientific researchers as well. This is not just me trying to jump into this whole journey. It's, it's a full team of people, uh, which I actually have the opportunity to thank them uh, right now. Uh, it's a full team of people, uh, including doctors and specialists, to volunteers helping with the social media and all these things. It's been, it's been mental with the, with the training uh, I, I take a tire, I take weights, I, I go up, up hills, I go down hills. I go to where we have one of the best uh, outdoors gym in the world, and that's the Rocky Mountains. So I yeah. go climbing, I go, you know, it's, 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 been, it's been mental. Yeah. Leo, before we let you go, I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you, you've been through this. Uh, you, you had a passion of climbing before. You have this heart attack. You have this ambitious goal, and you want to make a difference in other people's lives. Uh, but when you told people what your goal is, did you have some people say, no way, you're crazy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's always the, 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 the unknown of what mountaineering is about. Uh, mountaineering is about uh, many other things. It's just like like any other sport. Uh, it's a passion. It's a life saving lifestyle. Uh, it has given me many things. Uh, the opportunities to see places no one has to see, and then uh, you will get the, the most amazing people. Uh, you meet the most amazing people. So it's basically a, a lifestyle. It's, mm-hmm. uh, some people say, "Well, this is crazy," but it, it is. It is very exciting, and, and I found uh, very, very, very welcoming uh, individuals as well. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, thank you. Uh, best of luck to you, Leo. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you very us. much. Thank, thank you. you, Andrew, for having me. Thanks. That's Leo Naiman, heart attack survivor. All eyes on climbing Everest. You can find more about his journey at the cause and to uh, make a donation at heartofthesummit.ca.